So welcome to this episode of the Sense Sensor podcast. Today I got Emily on, which I'm really excited about. And normally I give kind of an introduction of the guest, but actually I want you to experience Emily because often, you know, citing all these solicitations or credentials, I don't think really say anything about a personality and who a person is. And we live in a culture where we tend to identify people based on their qualification or their degree of education. And it doesn't resonate with me. So I'm going to stop doing that on this podcast. And also the reason I got Emily on, I never even looked into her <laughs> education because I don't really care. So she somehow popped up on my Instagram and I started following her for a while. And normally I really don't do that with people so much. Um, but there was just something intriguing. There was something inspiring about, you know, what was coming out. And there was something about the personality, the character, which is really what I want to bring out in this podcast, which I think is so much more valuable in that wisdom because it's a lived felt experience that we're going to be talking about today. So it's not going to be a lot of academic babble um, for people listening out there. Um, so I'm really excited to have um, Emily on the podcast. And also I just want to clarify quickly because I had a few people asking me what the whole Sense Sensor name is about. So I'll just get that out of the way and then we can start talking to Emily because it's really quite simple. It's a difficult name, but Sen stands for being grounded. And Sensor is a shortening for sensation, meaning the body. So basically the name of the podcast means being grounded in the body. Um, and that's a bit what I want to talk to Emily about today, which is why we're good to get out there. So first of all, welcome, Emily. I'm really excited to have you and thank you for making the time. Oh, thank you so much for reaching out and getting me on. I've really enjoyed our previous conversations leading up to this. And I'm impressed and I highly respect the fact that you started the podcast and decided to just omit all those credentials the label is that people think that's what defines us. When people introduce ourselves, like introduce ourselves to each other, usually within the first five questions is, hey, what do you do? Yeah. And I'm and sure you is, and I share that, like, oh, damn, what do I say? Do I, is this a person I need to babble my credentials to, <laughs> to warrant that, yeah, you should be talking to me. Or can I just be real with this person and be like, yo, you know what? I do life. I do emotions. I do sensations. I do feels. I do real conversations. Are you yes. with that? Yeah, I love it. You know, also because, again, credentials says nothing about a person's character. It says nothing about their lived experience. And, you know, I spoke to someone recently about this idea between knowledge and wisdom. We can all gain knowledge. Pick up a book and there's knowledge everywhere. Google, you can get whatever knowledge you want, right? But the difference between knowledge and wisdom is wisdom is felt experience, right? It's knowledge integrated with a felt experience. And you can only have that by having a lived experience, right? A doctor might logically understand something about diseases and conditions. They might have learned how to treat them. That doesn't mean they necessarily have wisdom, right? Because you have to have a felt experience. And I think that's what I love talking to you about is for me, when we were speaking, it was wisdom. And for me, that's much more valuable because the knowledge I can get myself, right? You just get a book and then I read about the knowledge. Um, but there's something about the integration when you speak with someone who actually lived it, who's been there. 
And that to me is so much more amazing and so much more important credentials, even that credential is not important, but that's what we should put on, right? We should put on our CV, our lived experience instead of our academic achievements. I think that would be such a different world. <laughs> Dude, I, I kind of started doing that on my CV just to see if anyone would pick it up. But so far I haven't sent it out to enough people to see if people would pick it up. But <laughs> having adopted that perspective or that approach, has that also affected how you seek out um, different people that you want to work with personally for your, for your growth, for your development? For example, yeah. when I started looking for a physio, because I had a lot of injuries from all the sports and stuff I used to do, it was hard for me to trust a physio who didn't look like they do any sports whatsoever. They like I, I I had more respect for the physios who train themselves and not just training in one specific sport, but they dabble in multiple different sports just so they can get the experience. They don't have to excel in any single one of them, but to get that experience. Yes, absolutely. And I do just yesterday I had a meeting with the lady who's training me as a breathwork facilitator. And, you know, I thought about why did I want to do it with her? There's, you know, there's other forms of breathwork that's more famous um, and more well-known. But there was something about when I met her that she wasn't teaching theory. I could feel the full embodied experience, which is also why she had a proper understanding of it, that breathwork is not just breathwork. It's taking people on a musical journey that enhance their emotions. It's integrating touch. And, you know, I had this, we might talk about this later, because I had this big debate in my counseling training where I mentioned in one of my reports why we have completely taken touch out of the therapeutic setting, even though it's the very first way that the human organism learned to feel safe in this world, right? And it's probably one of the most, it can be one of the most harmful things and also one of the most healing things, depending on how it's done. But because we feel so much awkwardness about it, we have completely removed it and we won't even look at it. And I said, of course, there need to be boundaries. We need to work on consent. There need to be built trust before you ever do this. But I said to exclude it completely, something that has such a huge capacity, right? And I could sense because she has integrated and lived this, right? She had that. And in her breath work, she uses music. She does the breath work, but she also uses touch. She might put things if she feels you need to be grounded. She puts something heavy on you or she puts her hand on your feet to ground you, right? So she get the integration. And I just knew when I saw her that she had a felt experience of what this was, which is why she gets it. So that's why. So you're right. Yes, I totally choose people based on their lived experience. You know, this is why I wanted you on here. I never even checked. I don't care what your credentials is. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you about it because I don't want to waste our time, right? So it's about you can just sense when people have been there, when they have lifted, when they have walked through it. Um, yeah, so definitely the same. And actually on that note, it would be interesting. I don't even know where to start because your story is like so vast. <laughs> Welcome to my brain. <laughs> yes, we could be here for so long exploring your brain, different parts of it. <laughs> and, yeah, I, uh, I recently get into a whole rabbit hole of uh, how do I concisely condense everything into different parts? So I discovered Notion and it's the perfect tool for my brain at the moment because there are lists and there are pages and there are umbrellas. Oh man, if you haven't tried Notion and you're that kind of scattered brain person, try it. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up. But let's yep. get started a bit because, you know, we're sitting here today because you've been on a journey. I guess we all have. I'm here. I started this podcast because I've been on a journey. And I think we obviously have a passion for helping people heal and eventually also hopefully move beyond that and flourish. 
and not have to be stuck in a place of fight or flight or collapse. So instead of going into all the science, I'd much rather start hearing a bit about your story and, and why you're here today, why you're doing the things that you're doing. And then we can always dive a bit more into some of the details. Okay. You know what? This is almost kind of perfect timing because over the weekend, something happened over the weekend and it was totally unexpected and it got me reflecting a lot. So over the weekend, I turned four. And in medical terms, that's how you gauge how long a bone marrow transplantation has been alive since day zero, which is the day where you've undergone about a week of intensive chemo that wipes out your bone marrow completely in order for you to be ready to receive your donor's uh, stem cells. So for context, people are wondering, why the hell do you have a bone marrow transplant? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to stay young? No, I don't know if that's really the purpose of it. But five years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. And the reason why it's kind of layered with um, the belt promotion and, and graduation in my Brazilian jiu-jitsu community over the weekend is... Six months before cancer, I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that itself has been a journey for me because I never really paid much attention to why I was drawn to martial arts. Prior to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I took on MMA classes and training. I took on Muay Thai. I traveled to Thailand every year to train Muay Thai. The first martial arts that got me going was capoeira. And alongside with capoeira, I think I was fascinated with how the body can be expressed in, in the flick of a moment. You have to read the situation and decide within fractions of a second how you are going to respond to it without actually making contact. That's really tricky about capoeira. But there's so much acrobatics behind it and community feel that it also got me drawn to kung fu and wushu. So... Along this time, and I took a Krav Maga as well with the intention of self-defense and self-defense only because I was traveling a lot. And as a single petite Asian woman, you kind of need to arm yourself with, with some sort of safety and security that you know how to carry yourself. You know how to gauge and pick out situations where things might escalate or things might lead to something. You just have to be on guard. The point there is I've always been in flight or fight mode mm. and that draws back i didn't notice i didn't realize this before but it wasn't until cancer happened and i had to look for a therapist to help me work through some stuff and it took me all the way back to when i was 15 and that was when the first sexual assault happened i was unconscious and my boyfriend at the time took advantage of me i was i hadn't had sex before at that point and my first time turned out to be uh, an experience which i had no recollection of and that led to an unwanted pregnancy and a termination and led to, okay, trigger warning. I did think that I did not deserve to live. So I tried to take my own life. But I'm not here to talk about that specifically. It's more of everything encompassing that. I learned really well how to suppress things. Good or bad, right or wrong, I just learned how to suppress things. And being an immigrant in the U.S., you get really good at suppressing things because you will never feel like you will have authorities on your side helping you. You are always going to be the outsider. 
So layering on all of these, fast forward in life, you you go for things that you never really understood why you were drawn to. Pole dancing, for example, it turned out to be, upon reflection, it turned out to be a way that I could express my sensuality and just a different type of energy where I could get in touch with my feminine energy without any threat, without a threat of the other person. I am in the studio, just me, the mirror, myself, and the music. I'm dancing for myself. I'm expressing. I'm moving for myself. I never realized that was the container I was creating, a safe container where I could feel sensationally fully in myself. And sex for a long time had been a chore. It hadn't been enjoyable. How does this link to martial arts? Linking this to martial arts is a way for me to gain also self-exploration, but self-compassion. Because you do martial arts yourself, and you and I both know how humbling it is if you go on jiu-jitsu in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class within the first round. You are humbled. Whatever thoughts you had walking into class thinking, oh, I got this. I, I can do this. It seems easy enough. You're just rolling around the floor. Yeah, within one minute, less than a minute, you are humbled to to the nakedness that you feel like, oh, what am I even doing here? Should I even come back? It's not exactly the confidence boost I was looking for, but you end going back because now you get addicted and you get drawn to the potential that you have in yourself to grow, to learn, to develop, to confront yourself within the safety of yourself, safety of your brain, safety of your own reflections. No one actually knows what you're going through on the mats, but you know that your opponent or your training partner is kind of going through the same thing. So in that, I found community, camaraderie, people that you can connect on another level without the deep conversations that sometimes can be triggering and uncomfortable and just not ready for some people. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it brings it all into context. And there's something really beautiful, actually, about your journey as well in this in this little part of it that you shared, because... For me, and please, you know, elaborate, it might not be what it is, but it feels like getting into the martial arts and the pole dancing was also maybe a way to come back to the body. But as you said, in a safe way, because you could do the pole dancing by yourself, meaning there was a sense of safety, right? Nobody was going to take advantage. And even the martial arts, I guess, is a way of coming back and being safe in the body again, right? And you mentioned having felt that you lift in fight or flight, which makes a lot of sense if you have been exposed to what you have been exposed to, that there would be a constant hypervigilance and, of course, looking out for dangers. Um, so do you feel that this is something that had then been helpful for you at actually being able to come back into your body again and obviously deal with the fight or flight response that you have obviously lived with for a long time? Short answer, 100% yes. Mm. I'm just, I really wish I had paid more attention to that or been aware about that before cancer happened. But to say that, I probably am not being fair to myself because prior to cancer, I was drawn to flow movement. I don't know if you're familiar with Marlo. Marlo is the creator of flow movement. And it's not just a, it's not just a module or a teacher training course, but attending her five-day experience got me to break out of this 
structured, con- restrictive mindset that is filled with labels and imposter syndrome-like behavior. For example, I never associated myself, or I never identified as a dancer. I never went to dance school. I never went to jazz school. You know, I did ballet for a year when I was 12, which in ballet years, that doesn't even count. That's like a 101 introduction year. Um, so for the longest time, even through a poll, I never identified myself as a as a freestyle dancer or someone who could freestyle. I've always identified myself as I can teach structure one, two, three, four. Mm. This is what you do on the account. And going through that experience was beyond just feeling it in the body. It was about time the body and brain made that connection and start dating each other and start seeing each other's cool (laughs) and beautiful qualities and allowing each other trust. You know, the body is now trusting the mind and going, hey, is it okay if I do this? Oh, it's okay. You know what? I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start doing this without you telling me that I'm not good enough. I'm not a dancer. I shouldn't be doing that. I'm not flexible enough. I shouldn't be even trying that. Yes. It's that communication that that was ignited. And I, I like to pay a lot of credit to people who inspired me. And it's through that I started embracing, you know what? Everyone has a movement language. Just because someone else is positioned as a movement guru doesn't mean that you have to copy and move exactly like them. You know, isn't it? I love what you're saying. And isn't it amazing? This idea, because I heard it so often, I'm not a good dancer, right? And I used to have it. So I practiced five rhythms and ecstatic dance. And I'm actually just starting hosting. I'm learning how to DJ. So I hosted a few ecstatic dances. And and it's so common, this thing, yes, this idea that I can't dance. And let's look at children. You will never hear a small child say, I can't dance, because they haven't learned yet that there's a right or wrong, there's a sexy, there's a not sexy. They haven't learned all these limitations yet, right? So the body already knows how to dance. Everybody knows how to dance, right? And that's what I love about five rhythms and ecstatic dance. You don't need to dance with a partner. You're not there to be with somebody else. You're there to be with your breath and just move your body however it wants to move. And it doesn't matter how it looks like. And that's actually part of the practice. And there's something that I found hugely freeing and connecting. And I noticed there were some things that was impossible for me to process through talking or even other modalities of embodiment that somehow through the music and movement it was like the body got to speak it could get to speak anger that maybe it couldn't express in other ways safely right even in the mma for that matter that somehow could safely be expressed there was a sadness that could be expressed right in the dance in the movement and how i moved Um, and it was just really really beautiful to realize that we are all dancers we are born dancers we just forget because we get all these limitations of what is right how we should look how we should move how we should speak etc etc what titles we should have when we come on a podcast right we learn the right and wrongs of how we should navigate life and we forget that innate we have it and it was interesting i recently had an experience when i was down with my friend in devon and and i was lying there with closed eyes and i was meditating and and I sense that innate capacity for the body to heal. And I literally imagine how I created this body, literally from a sperm cell and an egg. I created the fingers, the brain cells, the connection, the vision. I created that. And how could we ever doubt that we also have the ability to then heal this body again? 
if we come back and listen, right? But we have to somehow get out of our heads. We think we can analyze or talk our way through it. We can't because the body holds that memory, just like for you, the experiences you had that obviously have been so traumatizing, their body remembered those, right? And there's a way, and it's beautiful how you use pole dancing, how you use martial arts, and even getting that, I guess, a sense of safety through the martial arts, as you said, you know, I can, I learn how to protect myself. And I guess there's also an importance in that, right? Um, and I know myself that for my daughter, I think we spoke about this last time when we chatted, how important it's been for me to teach her from really young, first of all, that that boundaries are a beautiful thing and that they will be respected. And also that love is not taken away because she says no, right? If she doesn't want a hug from me, if she doesn't want a kiss, I actually show appreciation. So she gets to see that actually she's still loved, she's still safe, nothing actually changes from saying no. That's the first step, right? And then I trained her from she was like four or five, what to do when somebody didn't stop. And and she really got it now, right? And we even practiced recently and she gave me a proper smack. She can hit quite hard now. And she tried to kick me in the balls. Luckily, I dodged it. <laughs> but oh, but no. then I said, well done. And and my ex-wife, she said, oh, you shouldn't really teach her that. I said, well, it's great that she knows if somebody doesn't stop, why she should not be allowed to assert her physical boundaries, right? And even in the culture that we have this idea that we say that's not okay, I said, of course it is. Of course a woman has the right to fight back. If somebody doesn't stop when they said stop, and I said, I want my daughter to fight back. If one day a guy doesn't stop, I want her to smack him in the face. Um, and that's okay, right? We should encourage that. So yeah, anyway, it's probably going off track, but it takes us a bit to this discussion around boundaries, right? And I guess, what have you, like, how have you engaged with that in learning how to feel your boundaries and feel safe in your boundaries again with people around you? Well, just exactly how you parent your your daughter. I I don't agree with I don't agree with telling kids what is improper behavior. Oh, of course, when it's harming someone who doesn't deserve it, who wasn't trying to threaten you, I get it. But when we do behaviors like that, like no, you shouldn't kick someone in the balls like that. <laughs> but he did that. Okay? That's it's contextual. It's not a blanket statement. You should never kick anyone in the balls. You should never slap anybody. If that person's trying to harm you, you need to try to protect yourself. Now, are there other ways to do it? Sure. If it if it means you have to run from that situation, by all means, sprint. Learn how to run. Take up parkour. And that's another reason why I took up parkour was nice. it 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 all it's it all encompasses you getting yourself out of a situation that you if you should not engage, don't engage. The best thing is probably to run. But it's also related to it within our sexual behavior. For example, kids, and this is something I'm learning right now in the Sexual Health and Alliance course, and it's so fascinating. The recent one that I was um, that was studying, it talks about how kids at a really young age are told and smacked for touching themselves without the intention of masturbation or anything sexual that we adults impose on them. There are kids, they're curious. But at a young age, let's say when you're four or five, and you know, you're itchy down there, so you put your hand down there and kind of give it a, a little scratch. You're, you're suiting yourself, you're self-suiting. But a parent or an adult comes over and say, don't do that, don't touch that. Well, of course you're going to get a negative a negative impression or a negative connotation and association to touching yourself. So as an adult, a lot of women, more women than men, has never experienced masturbation or even 
feel good and deserving about touching themselves and and self pleasure. So it's not to say that this is only with sex and violence. It's just a lot of things that we grew up thinking that we should be a certain way has a long lasting impact in adulthood. And take growing up, for example, in a Chinese school. I grew up before I moved to the states. I grew up in Malaysia, and I went to a Chinese school. And during during these six seven years, we had a discipline master. Like his title is disciplinary master. His job <laughs> is literally to go to every single kid, assess them, and see if okay, your hair is past your eyebrows. I am disciplining you. You stood out of line. I am disciplining you. That is his job.、Mm-hmm. Now imagine these kids. Okay, this back in the day, it is very common to use humiliation as a form of punishment. I didn't turn in my homework on time. Okay, you are standing in front of the class with your hands, with your fingers on your earlobes for the entire class. What do you learn? You were not involved in the lessons, but the lesson there is: if you don't bring your homework. Or if you didn't do your homework in time, you will be humiliated, and not to talk about corporal punishment where they hit you and stuff. But these are things where people will process them in a totally different way. Maybe you have an aversion towards authority figures over the time, or it could be the complete opposite, where it's someone I know who went through the same kind of system growing up. Now they are constantly in their brain. The narrative is you are not good enough. You are stupid. What are you even doing? This the, the voices of his teachers came back, and he's freaking thirty years old right now, having a hard time at work. Whenever performance review comes around, it just takes you right back to those days where the teacher is pretty much telling you you did this wrong. You're not good enough.、Mm. And that's so interesting because it it actually it's a topic I wanted to speak to you about, which is shame. And how we and you're right. I guess you started out talking about the sexual context. You're right. For a lot of women, they have no idea what even feels good, right? So they, there's no way to communicate that because, well, there was no place to actually experiment. And it's interesting. I remember an ex-partner I had, and and even before we had been、uh, physical and sexual, I actually bought her toys, some sex toys, and I gave it to her, and. She said, "Why are you doing that?" Because I talked to her, obviously, right? And she said she never explored. She didn't know what she liked. And I said, "Well, you know, here's some things for you to play around with before we get before we get sexual." And and she thought that was quite weird. And I said, "Actually, it's not." I said, "It's the way society has raised you that's quite weird. The way our culture has raised you, because this is our body, and." We are often so shamed about it, and and then we started talking about you know, oh, is pleasure shameful? I said, "Listen." Uh, because also she talked about religion. I said, "Okay, let's let's whatever religion it is you have, yeah. Let's say God created a man and woman. Then, you know, let's look at the physiology." I said, "A woman has an organ called a clitoris that has only one purpose, one purpose, which is pleasure. It has no other purpose. It doesn't need it for reproduction. It literally has no purpose." So I said, "Do you think a woman wasn't meant to feel pleasure if she has an organ that has no other purpose?" I said, "A man doesn't have that." We have to multitask. They say we can't multitask, but we can. <laughs> so you know, a man has to multitask. So I said, of course, it's nonsense. And I said, but the fact that you have to first explore and get to know your body, right, before you are able to communicate. And also, often in a sexual context, there can be so much pressure, right, because worry about oh, am I taking too long? But but there can be trauma. There can be so many things that prevent 
the ability to feel pleasure when being with somebody else. And the first step is actually to feel safe doing it with yourself, right? Before you should ever start playing around with somebody else. Does that add all these elements of complexity, of safety, of feeling pressure, of feeling stressed? Uh, how do I look? Blah, 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 all this stuff, right? So I always encourage people, I say, start with doing this yourself before you involve other people. Um, and also what you said about the school system, I think is so true. It might be more extreme in Asia, but still, you know, I resonate as well, like you said, with there's a lot of shame. And this idea that only if you fit and do things in the right way, then you are an acceptable, worthy, loving human being, which also, I think, by the way, impact our ability to set healthy boundaries. Because this idea that I have to be accepted by this person to be okay or do things a certain way means it becomes hard to say, no, I don't want this, right? I don't want to do this task at work. It's not okay. Actually, I don't want to do this sexual act because I don't like it. That becomes much harder, right? when we learn that to to not be shamed <laughs> and we have to do certain acts um so yeah and also this is where the difference i think between shame and guilt is important because guilt is feeling bad about something i've done right maybe i swore at you and afterwards i'm like oh i shouldn't have done that right and that's okay to feel guilty about an action i've done then i come and say i'm sorry emily i i went too far i really apologize that's okay but feeling bad about who i am there's literally nothing constructive in that whatsoever right and it probably even make it harder for me to apologize because that mean i would feel even more shame right so it would make it more likely that i would not deny i'd done anything wrong and actually i think this is important when we also because part of your story was obviously talking about an experience of violation is and i think shame does play a part in that because men need to take responsibility for their actions but actually the the and it might sound very crazy and controversial, but I think we need to use guilt and not shame for them to start coming out and taking. But shame means people go into denial and they won't take responsibility, right? But feeling guilty about what they've done, meaning we offer a door open that change is possible, right? But they have to take responsibility. And even I noticed things when I did my somatic training in San Francisco, things like consent. You know, when the teachers ask the men, what is consent? Nobody could answer this simple question. The answer that was normally given was it's a yes or no. And I looked around because I've been teaching this too. And I thought, fuck, nobody. And these are people that are interested in this topic. Imagine a lot of men are not even interested in learning about this. And they did not actually know what consent was because consent is not just a yes or no. Somebody can say yes, but feeling in danger or under threat, that's not consent. So it's not about a yes or no. And again, especially as a man, but everybody has this, we also have a responsibility to look out for things like, is this person disassociating, right? And if they are, you need to stop because there's not consent anymore if somebody disassociates. But when I speak to men about that, they don't even know how that looks like, right? So again, you have to teach them, this is what it looks like if a woman disassociates, which can happen if she had trauma and you need to stop and check in and say what's happening because in that moment she probably is not in a state where she can give consent but again nobody's taught this and i sometimes think why is this not part of our basic education we learn science english mathematics but we don't learn how to not harm other people because sometimes even well-intentional men like i've met men that are not horrible they're not violators but they still cause harm sometimes because they haven't learned these very basic skills and it's like whoa <laughs> 
and it's twofold, right? It's not just men having to learn these these nuances. Women also have to learn that when this happened to them and when they're experiencing these these unfamiliar stages and mixed emotions and 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 that sensation from your nervous system if you're able to recognize it then you are able to vocalize it yes. and i wish i had learned about that too when i was 18 a, a guy i was dating at the time forced himself on me and of course yes we might have sex already before but i didn't feel like it at the time i didn't want it and i said no five times but he chose to ignore it and at the time i hadn't learned martial arts yet i just froze and I didn't understand what it was. I think at the time, I, you know what? I actually don't know what it was. I think I just kind of blanked out and went numb. But I didn't know what it was. So now, reflecting back, I recognized that was actually disassociating myself. I was disassociating myself from the situation. I didn't know how to engage. The body froze. It wasn't fight or flight anymore. It's freezing. If women, more women can understand that there are ways to label these experiences and these experiences do not make you weird, do not make you unnormal, do not make you just undateable or unlovable. These experiences are valid. Then empower yourself to vocalize this because only upon vocalizing this can men also learn, oh, okay, so this is what it looks like. Now, I'm glad you told me, can we please talk about this? We'll stop. Can we please talk about this? Because as you're saying that, I'm agreeing. I'm nodding. I'm agreeing everything. At the same time, I also feel for men who have never experienced the avenues of learning. I have two brothers. I have no sisters. Well, I have two stepsisters, but I didn't grow up with them. So it's it's different there. And growing up with brothers, I've always played a more masculine energy in my life. So I feel like I can relate with them more than, let's say, compared to girls who have never really grown up with boys or played with boys in that sense. And I feel for guys who don't feel safe enough to reach out to just any avenues of exposure. They might look to porn and think that, okay, well, I like what I like. I'm not going to explore anything else on porn. Like, how many guys will admit they look up erotic sex on porn? Might not be that. It might just be threesomes and gangbangs and whatnot. And hey, no judgment here. But how many men actually look up intimacy, intimate sex, sensual sex, erotic sex on porn? Because they do exist and they do they exist for women, I think. And how many men feel safe enough to talk about this with their peers, with men in their lives? It doesn't have to be their their bro. It could literally be someone who has more distance, someone who is a sex teacher, a coach, a therapist, a mentor in their life. Do they dare bring this up without fearing that they're going to be judged by this other man that they have respect for? Or perhaps they're just being, they're just afraid that they will lose respect to bring up these kind of conversations. So, Tom, in your experience, what can a man do? Well, I think it's a really good question. I just wanted to say, because there was one part of your story I think is really important that you highlighted with, with this 
boyfriend you had when you were 18, which is just to say again to the listeners that, because this brings back to consent, that because you got a consent once, doesn't mean it's a consent that's there all the time. That's really important. Because you're right, even when you're dating, you still need consent. And I think that's really important. So, you know, consent doesn't mean that you can continue to do the same in a different circumstance, in a different time. Consent is specific to that moment. Consent can even change doing an act, you know? So that means somebody might want to be sexual with you, but they still have the right to suddenly, while that's happening, maybe you're kissing, getting undressed, to say, oh, actually, this doesn't feel good. I needed to stop. And that doesn't mean the consent that was given in the beginning then it's still there. It's now taken away, right? And that's important to understand too. That and boundaries too, because we tend to think as boundaries are something static, right? It's like a, it's not a house wall that stays there. They're organic. They can be lower. They can go up. They can move further away. They can go closer. And actually, it's okay to change. And I think often, especially with conversation with women, I had this. They feel that if they had said yes or gone along then they have to follow through. And I always say, fuck no. Who taught you this nonsense that you have to follow? You don't have to follow. You don't owe this person anything. Nada. Not, but again, it comes back to to be accepted, right? To be okay. It comes back to the idea of shame, right? I have to go through with this to be accepted. Acceptance is obviously the opposite of shame. So to not be shamed, I have to go through with this to not feel rejected. But no, it's totally okay to to test, does this feel good? Oh, we're kissing, but actually, oh, no, I don't want to go further. And I had that discussion so many times. So that's obviously on the female side to understand it's okay to stop even doing. And for the man to understand, you have to respect that. Um, and you said, how do men then engage if they have never really been exposed to that? Well, I think it starts much earlier because I think we are just seeing as symptoms of men being raised in... I don't know if you know this guy who's very popular on social media, Andrew Tate. And I watch his videos and he's very popular and, and he has a lot of opinions, but frankly, he's not that educated um, and it's quite clear in a lot of his opinions. So I watch it and I, I take it, yeah, you know, it's, it's great you have opinions, but maybe you should read a few books first um, or just study a bit. Maybe he needed a degree, actually. He needs a degree. <laughs> Uh, maybe he's been punched too many times in the face. I know he's a great kid boxer, but I think he got punched a few too many times. But anyway, the the point is this, the point is this, that he represents that culture of men who grow up with feeling I'm entitled and emotions are dangerous. He even say women find men who cry on a track. You can never do that with a woman, right? That's a typical thing he would say. And actually he's got that wrong. So it's true that a woman don't want to take care of you. He's right about that. That's not particularly attractive. But crying does not mean you need somebody to take care of you. And being able to express your emotion doesn't mean you need somebody to take care of you. So, you know, I can cry, but I also know I can knock somebody out. I can I can feel sad, but I also know I can get shit done. But there's this idea that we teach boys very early that it's one or the other. And he's a perfect example of a man who learned this nonsense that either you have to be what they call strong, which basically means you have to shut down your emotions. And when you do that, then intimacy is not really possible. Then sex just become well fucking, which is what you see on porn, right? Intimacy is not possible. And there's no engagement with that side. And, you know, these poor men miss out on so much that life has to offer. And then they see the other side, which is being 
sensing your feeling your emotions and they see that as weakness and they don't understand that actually these two can exist together you know he talks about i get stuff done well you can cry and get stuff done you can even use your sadness to create a lot of stuff in this world as a motivator right and like you're doing that you had a lot of things that had a huge impact but it's motivating you to go out and create beautiful things that's why you're here on this podcast etc so I think we need to start much, much earlier because often it's quite late when they're adults and they have learned this nonsense and it's harder. We need again to start by teaching, which is obviously what I try to do in the schools, by teaching children is really, really early. It's by not shaming a man or a boy for that matter. We're talking about a child now, a boy, when he falls down and hurt himself and cry. But instead we teach him resilience. We teach him that their emotions is totally fine. So crying is fine, but you still get back up. Yeah. And then we're teaching him resilience, strength, but also being okay with his emotions. And we are now teaching him that the two are not two exclusive worlds, right? That feeling your emotions doesn't mean you're weak and don't do and don't take action. Does that make sense? So I think it starts really, really early by embracing their emotional response, but also not indulge in it, but showing them how to use that emotional response to then take action. You know, I, I hear everything you're saying and... I fully agree. And I want to expand on that. So join me in this. First of all, I think that our next generation, our youngest generation, are going to be a whole different breed. They are currently being raised by parents like yourself. You are aware. You you put more mindfulness and more and more conscious, more intention behind the way you parent. And you're more mindful about how you react as well to your kids. Because it's a two-way. It's not just the parent teaching the kids. Sometimes the kids teach the parents. Mm. A lot of times, actually. <laughs> and I, we have no idea how that's going to pan out, right? We, we can't really predict the future. So I'm really, I'm, I'm looking forward to how that pans out. But I want to look at people around our age right now. Actually, I don't know how old you are, but I'm just going to put you in the same block anyway, as like a borderline thank millennial. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my God. I like you already. <laughs> okay. So people that are under age, I'll just put in the bracket of between the ages of 34 to 44. I know. It's there we go. Bracket. I'm in the range. There we go. There you go. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Within this range, we were raised by parents who are not the way we think today, who were only doing what they thought was best for us. And was it good enough? Who's to judge? It's different for everybody. But I'm really talking about the people right now. And that is the men and women within this age bracket who were raised by the notion of when you see a man cry, it is weakness. Both men and women think these, think mm -hmm. this sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's not just men within men. When I talk to some of my guy friends, because I like to, you know, put stuff up on social media and test the waters and see who is going to react to this and see who is going to be the one who is open for conversation. I do this mindfully, of course. And of course, I definitely will get a few who feel attacked. And when they feel attacked, they will challenge me with other extreme measures. And when I say extreme measures, I, I retort with a question, does it have to be one or the other? Why is it just on the far end of the spectrum that we're looking at? Why can't it be somewhere in the middle? Why can't it be dependent on the context? Why does it have to be this or that? All or nothing kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. 
that really leaves no room for flexibility, for movement, for compassion and forgiveness, which for some people are trigger words. So what I'm trying to go here, get, get to is for some men who can't understand how to regulate their emotions. And they might take the easy route of saying, I don't know what emotions are. I don't, I don't associate with them. It doesn't resonate with me. I have no emotions. I'm just numb. I like to think that is not true, at least not with every single person who say that. I think it's more of perhaps you feel emotions so intense that your reaction is to block it out. It's not that you have no emotions. Now, when you feel emotions so intensively, what can you do with it when you have no prior practice to, to process it? And yeah. the process procedure, the experience of processing is one, looking at it in the face and go, all right, come at me, bro. What you got? What are you? Let, let's dissect you. Let's, you know what? Let's be friends. I don't want to be your enemy. Let's be friends. Be friends with your emotions, no matter how, how intense or aggressive they feel in response to that. And mm. I think when we start, we opened the conversation today with the complex of, when you were rolling with this woman and you can feel her aggression and you know she wanted you to hit her back because it's a training ground. Mm -hmm. But for you, you have your own set of morals and belief and just associating with, look, I can't do that. It's, it's not just about a belief. It's I physically, I do not feel good doing that. And there's no judgment there. It's just got to respect how you feel. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of complexity there because on one hand, you're, I see you as someone who enjoys and is passionate about teaching. So in the teaching role, that will naturally come in. Like, I, I want to teach her something, but teaching her means that I have to do the thing that is not going to feel good. So there is a dilemma there as well that you have to deal with. So in, for a lot of men, I think, and a lot of women as well, a lot of women who I identify with previously, who used to live in our masculine energy more so, thinking that I can't show weakness. I can't show that I cry. I need to appear tough at all times. I cannot even show that I am in any way a woman, as, as crazy as that sounds. Mm -hmm. For men today, I feel you. I feel you that it's scary. I feel you that it's scary to show that you are capable of feeling the surge of energy that comes up from your chest up to your face and your face gets tingly and your eyes start to move around in the socket and your voice changes. And I'm feeling this as I'm picturing how it is to be in the role where you feel like you have to conform to a structure and you identify so hard with that structure that it's going to take a lot of work for you to be who you actually want to be, for you to act how you want to act, in order for you to be the person you actually want to be. You want to be the man or the woman who, or the partner who can be there for your partner and not feel afraid or triggered when they express sadness. I want to be the kind of partner who's not going to feel like I am not good enough 
because my partner is so amazing. I admire my partner. But what is what are they doing with me? I want to not live in a world where that happens. So these are examples that I wish that we could connect with more people on, and have these kind of conversations where it feels like there is not going to be threat. You're not going to be shooting anything at me. You're not shooting ammo at me, just because I vocalize something that is quote unquote gay or anything like that. And I'm not talking about homosexual here. I'm just talking about the word that is seemingly uncomfortable because they cannot process it. Beautiful. Thank you. And you know what? I think it brings us back to where we started in your story because part of being able to have these emotions and allow them to be and be seen is to know how to be with them and process them, right? Because emotions are not dangerous. They're just messengers. I always say it's like being cold or being hot. We don't say that's good or bad, but somehow we started classifying emotions. If you're hot, you take some clothes off like you did before. If you're cold, we put more on. If I'm hungry, I eat. If I'm full, I stop. Sensations we haven't classified, right? Emotions we have. We said that there's good emotions. I want to be happy. And there's bad emotions, which like anger. Oh, but no, neither of them are good or bad. The reason that some things become destructive like anger is actually because we haven't learned how to process it. And it's nothing more than a signaling system, both sensation and emotion. So hunger, just say you need to eat for whatever to raise your blood sugar. So the same with emotions. Anger is actually not dangerous. If you don't know how to process it, it can become dangerous. That's true. The expression of anger. It's not the anger that's dangerous. It's the way you express and process anger that becomes dangerous. So I think the fact is, and this is where there's a lot of strength, anger is telling you, for example, that maybe you're being violated. And that's an important messenger for your body to send you. Or that something is happening in your life that's not okay, right? So, so when instead we can stop and listen and also understand how do I process this emotion, then we can allow ourselves to feel it, right? So anger can be processed in a beautiful way in MMA or in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? It's a beautiful place to allow the body to express anger that maybe could not be expressed in other ways. Um, for me, I, I express my emotions a lot through dance, right? So I will dance in different ways and that allow it for, that's why I said again, movement. And movement is great if we are in some kind of arousal and feel stressed, right? Or high intense emotion, because organically the body wants to move. But we live in a culture that's so based on thinking we have to talk and think our way through things instead of that we need to move. And the body is literally built and made for movement. That's what it's meant to do, right? So this idea, which is so simple, and I showed it to quite a few men, is that you can start moving with your emotions and suddenly they're not so overwhelmed. And I will do that myself. If I feel sadness, whatever it might be, I put on music and I move. And that allows me to be with that emotion and then move through and use it for something constructive, right? Um, because we often forget emotions are not good or bad. They're not destructive or constructive for that matter. It depends on what we do with them. They're literally just forms of energy, right? They're forms of energy that can be expressed in different ways. Um, so, yeah, I think there's so much to explore, but I love your perspective and I think it's beautiful. Um, and, yeah, this whole idea that emotions 
are not attractive, I think, really inhibit. And you're right, it's put on both by men, but also by some women, for sure. Um, and I think the big misunderstanding is that emotions might feel unattractive when it's impossible to be able to regulate them and be with them. Yeah, that's true. Then maybe a woman would say, oh, this is not for me. But emotions are not unattractive if you learn how to be with them, to regulate them, and to direct them. Then they can actually be the opposite, highly attractive. Um, and I can only say from my own experience, because I spent most of my life in a typical male way of living, or I never violated anybody, but in a way that, oh, I shouldn't show emotions. And I always felt so disconnected. Even when I had partners or girlfriends, I somehow never felt close to them. And I always thought, what is this emptiness? What is wrong with me? And it makes sense because there can't be intimacy if you can't have emotions, right? Or express emotions. And you never feel the other person actually accept you, right? Because they just accept, like you said, whatever you are, a provider, a protector, which are wonderful things too. But it somehow means that you feel part of you is missing and not being seen. And Actually, I had the opposite experience because I can regulate my emotions. I found that when I actually allowed the emotions to be brought in, it actually made me more attractive and it was easier. I got more attention. So I think it's a myth and a lack of understanding that it's not the emotions, it's your inability to be with the emotions that might become unattractive. And to challenge some men who like to argue with that point. I would like to say, well, if you want to be, if you're, if you're with someone who runs away every time they see a hint of emotion, is that mm. really the kind of person you want to spend your life with? Yeah, I like that. That's a so it boils one. down to why do you want to be with that person, and what is really important to you? What are your values? What do you, what do you respect in the person? Maybe we can talk about that more. Hey, hey, you know what? Let's not talk about it. Let's move about it. Yeah. And it even brings us back to what you talked about, the childhood, this idea of being shamed in school and what we feel we have to do to be accepted, right? So for, I guess for a lot of people, they have given up their emotional world to feel that they can be accepted in this world. And I'm like, wow, that's a big price to pay. And for me, it became too big a price to pay, which is why I chose I wouldn't live like that. And you said, yeah, maybe some people don't like it. And I'm totally okay with that. Because just like you said, that's definitely not the woman I'm going to spend my time with, right? And there's plenty of other that will value it, who appreciate it. So I think you're right. It's also asking, what am I actually willing to give up to live in this idea that was given to me, right? It's kind of, I call it the garden. It's kind of like we're given a garden and we grow up And we think this garden that we have, that that's our world. And for some people, there's a lot of phones in there and they walk through their garden and ah, they're being pinched and it's hurting. But they think that's just the garden they have because that's the one that was given. That's what was planted in their garden. And there's a point of waking up, looking at this and thinking, that's not my fucking garden. And I can pull up these shitty things that keep hurting me and I can plant my own flowers, right? I don't have to live this way just because that's what was given to me. And I think often we don't even recognize that it's not our garden and we can change it. We can pull stuff up. We can plant new stuff. You know what? That is a beautiful way to transition into that sensation of peace. That's actually what I felt over the weekend. It, it, it was a, it was a weird sensation of um, 
it was two minutes of standing there when your professors are telling the group about how you've been training for five years, but never been graded and you've been through difficult times, but no matter what, you just kept going. And in, in that moment, I just experienced relief. Wow. I've been fighting for too long. Followed by peace. I can finally be in the space where I can train and fight within safety. And I think upon that peace, you can carry over and recognize how that feels when we reflect on what's really important. You don't have to go through something like cancer or physical assault or life-threatening situations to ask yourself these really valuable questions. Am I doing what I really want to right now? Am I fulfilled? Am I feeling like I'm being my best self? Whatever that may be. It's not someone else's imposed bestness. It's, it's what feels right for you. Yeah, that really resonated. I felt my body just relaxing <laughs> as you were talking. I felt my shoulder drop an inch. <laughs> It's this is a sigh of relief. I learned uh I learned from my friend Danny Fang. He's a breathwork practitioner as well. I I wish I had learned more about breathwork practitioners like the woman that you spoke of, because she combines music and things that are not in a typical structure of breathwork module. Mm. And it's so impactful. And I think you just said something that is so beautiful and resonates so much. And I think it's something I want to leave people on today. You said, I found a place where I can fight in safety. Because people ask me all the time, I've been interviewed on what is love, what is love, and all these misunderstandings we have about intensity. And I said, you know, a friend of mine asked me, how do I know if it's love or addiction? Because I talked about addiction too. I said, addiction only has intensity and it lacks safety i said that's a difference always ask yourself in this dynamic do i feel safe because if there's not safety then it's not love then it's just a chemical addiction and it can feel great for a while but it's a very defining feature as you said of coming home right of coming home of feeling you can be in the mat and actually feel safe what a beautiful way to put it Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. What a beautiful human being you are. I feel really privileged to have had this conversation with you. Oh, man, the honor is mine, Thomas. It's it's a beautiful exchange of energy and a roller coaster of it mm. every time we talk. <laughs> Life is a roller coaster. Exactly. There's no, there's no, just remember to put the belt on. That's all we can do. <laughs> Or just learn to fly. Yes, wouldn't that learn be to great? Land. You know what? Learn to fall well. That, that's what we learn, number one in martial arts. Learn to fall. Yes, and it's true. I tried to learn how to fly. What are they called, these machines? You know when you go on the water and they keep you on top of the water? I forgot what they're called. But at some point, you're oh, going to fall down. You're going to fall down. You're going to fall down. And you need to learn how to fall properly when you go back in the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. There's, there's art in falling. That is. So we're going to leave the listen to all that. And uh, yeah, I hope we can do another episode another time. 
Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Tom.